Welcome back to the channel, guys. This is part five of getting to know my father in public. I'm joined by Bas van Os. Bas, good to be here. Hi, Lucas. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. A little bit of uh, lower back pain, but... Uh, okay. Are you sitting on the cool chair? I'm sitting on the chair that you can dance on like this. That's good. Good for the back. <laughs> yeah. I had some questions for you today because mm. you seem to be someone of an unshakable faith. I don't know if that's an accurate description of you, but um, to me, it, it's how it seems to be. Sorry? It's, it's not. I've always said to, about myself that ik an aardstwijfelaar ben. That's Dutch. Um, and if I would translate it to, uh, uh, to English, it would be the arch doubter or doubter in chief. Um, but that's, I guess, my scientific background. Scientific questions thrive on doubt. So what do you doubt? You doubt I doubt things? Everything. everything. Even whether or not you can perceive this, what reality is, etc. Um, but yes, in general, um, I can easily doubt and entertain the possibility that I'm wrong. Mm. I, but what you asked about is yeah. why does it look like an unshakable faith? Mm. And that's basically because you make a choice. And as I try to instill in you guys, you make choices and then you try to live with it. And sometimes you change the choices, but you don't waver all the time like, oh, now this, now that, etc. Make a choice, find out what's good in it. And if it's not good, find a better choice. And I've tried, like you, I've tried to not believe. And it wasn't a better choice for me. How so? Um, I couldn't shake off the doubt if I tried not to believe. So doubting itself was part of me. It was not part of the choice. So trying to live as not believing is as difficult as living as believing. I was about 17 years old and when I went to university and I wanted to know that whether what I believed was part of my upbringing, my social environment or church. And I took a year to find out um, without these influences whether or not that would still be the case. And it has deepened my relationship with God tremendously without ever being certain whether or not I would be talking to an empty ceiling. I, I know I wrote a poem like the hand of about love uh, and the, 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 the grief you can have uh, when, when that's not uh, reciprocal. And then um, uh, thinking of talking to God as to a ceiling or thinking as God comforting you, but that's actually a thousand feathers. The hand of God is a thousand feathers, which is your cushion where you ply your head on. Mm. So, or where you lay your head on. And, and the, um, so the, the whole idea was always there that I am easily doubting whatever I say. But now we guess we come to the word, what is faith? And faith is not for me whether that you believe in something that you can't prove. For some people, that's it. It's believing something you can't prove. For me, it's choosing to stand on something you will you are not certain of. Like, for instance, when you have uh, winter and the lake is frozen over, whether or not you dare to stand on the ice and cross 
the river to the other side or cross the lake, etc. That is an act of faith. That is standing on it, living your life, being in the world, um, uh, acting as if it's true. And I, I thought that a lot of that came back when we started to listen to Jordan Peterson. Uh, yeah. About being in the world. And when he was talking about Christians, he was basically asking, are they living as if it's true? He says this when he's asked about his faith in God. Usually yeah. he says, I act as if he exists. But recently there was an interview where he was pushed on this. And... I think it boiled down to him saying that he does. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's, that's, at, at one point, it's your identity. Hey? You fake it till you make it, in, in, in a sense. It becomes your identity. But I will never say that I can prove the existence of God to someone who does not believe. What I can say is that I feel very, very comfortable in living as a Christian and trusting God and praying to God and being with God. And I feel there's a lot of strength in it. Mm -hmm. But I will always doubt from a scientific point of view um, uh, what it is. It's just that the words that that um, Christian faith has given me are so effective in describing what I feel that I'm very comfortable in using them. And there's no more effective way of speaking about it for you? There's not a more effective way of speaking, but not that, well, not one that I discovered. So okay. trying to go into a more scientific worldview or figuring out how Judaism or uh, Islam is talking about that um, or New Age stuff. I'm not very well versed in, um, in Indian uh, religion or in Chinese religion. I, I, I dabble about a bit, but I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not qualified to speak about that. What I'm qualified to speak about is that my, um, the way that I speak about it in a Christian or a biblical way is, is, is extremely effective for me. And that's what you experience as unshakable faith. Well, I see that you don't seem to question it actively, maybe not explicitly at least. That's what I've always seen in you, that when I asked you about God, because I was very uncertain also as a child, you would just speak about not only seeing God everywhere, but also being in a relationship with him, yeah. communicating. Yeah. And I would find it difficult to be in a relationship with someone that never answers back. So that's why I perceived it as unshakable faith. And in a sense, the way you speak about it does seem to make it unshakable <laughs> simply because you haven't found anything better. Yeah, and, and it's not communicating with someone who doesn't answer. God answers all the time. Yeah. It is the way that I interpret what I experience as an uh, interpreted as an answer. So how does how does he answer in your interpretation? Um, he always brings me back to this is the road. This is the road that you have to walk, or this is how you act, or this is what you do, and um, this is who you may be. Um, I've never been very good in understanding uh, sort of what people think about when they talk about prophecy, like predictions of the future. I don't have that at all. I, I have more like, how should I react on this? What is the good cause, uh, course to, to walk in this, in, in this situation? And I think uh, that is pretty strong. And that is something that perhaps um, 
is a little bit like Fravaki's embodying uh, the, the sage. If God lives in you, or if Jesus lives in you, then the communication is constant. So you internalize Christ. Yeah, that's what you do. Yeah. And that's what he says you're doing. He says, I'm going to live in you. Mm -hmm. I'm going I'm, I'm to make my home in you. And the more that you open up parts of your life to him, the more that he is present in every part of who you are. And I'm not saying that in a pious way. I'm just saying it as a matter of fact. If you live with him for a longer period of your life, uh, he is that best that you can be within you. Do you ever think about the Jewish criticism on Jesus being the Christ? I know John, for example, doesn't call Jesus the Christ. He calls him Jesus of Nazareth. Have you ever considered some of those arguments? Of course. And what do you think of them? Mm, I did an exercise once. Uh, I was, I was uh, astounded by the fact that Jesus was fully human, 100%. And I wanted to know how it was like for him. So I started to think about that finding if I could read the gospel narratives in a sort of a chronological order and in, in a historical context and in a geographical context and in a social context etc and then I um, um, I was trying to write that down and I couldn't until I had a traffic accident and I couldn't lie down and I was I had a a, 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 a little burst in one of the uh, side cervicals so, so there, there was little it hurt it hurt like hell mm -hmm. <laughs> and i sit upright and i sat upright and um uh, within a few weeks i wrote what i wanted to write and that was a the story of jesus from the gospels but simply retelling it in the first person i from his perspective and in the present time like i walk towards her towards a woman or what have you um and then and then experience what's going on and and, and when i wrote that i wrote that very much with an with understanding is how it came to be that so many people denounced him and said you're not the messiah and how logical that was how perfectly natural it is for uh, most of the jews in his time to say he's not the messiah so you really deeply understand it um, I've done an exercise to put myself in that period of time and see the conflicts. Yeah. And I guess, yeah, it makes a lot of sense not to see him as the Messiah. So how come you do? Ah, um, the reason you, you can't see Jesus as the Messiah is because of who you think God is. Now, Christians came to see God in a completely different light. I'm not saying God changed. I'm saying the way that we looked to concept of God in a completely different light. We, we, we started to say if, if Jesus is, calls God his father, let's call Jesus his unique son. And with unique son, I don't mean exactly one son. Um, Isaac is called Abraham's unique son, monogenes. Uh, but Abraham had more sons than just Isaac. 
Okay, so, um, but what does it mean to be the unique son? And that means that you're the son who looks like the father and who will take over the father's business. So you are, in a way, like all Caesars were Caesar one, Caesar two, Caesar three, and uh, they were of the family of Caesar, and they became they had the function of Caesar, and they had the, the fortune, the estate of Caesar, and likewise, with, with all these different characters uh, in antiquity, it meant a lot if you were the son or the father. So the character of Jesus became, the, in their eyes, became the character of God. And once God changed. It made so much sense to say, okay, the concept of being a Messiah changed. If Jesus is the Messiah, you turn it around. If it tells you something about who God is. I understand. It makes sense to me. I've, I've thought about this a lot. And also the way you phrase it is that we changed our perception of God, but we didn't change God himself. I think it makes me able to understand how many different religions look at that same underlying ground of being. I just find it difficult to square those different realities, let's say. Hmm. Because to me, it feels like more than just the way you look at God. It feels like that's actually the way, like I feel like love is actually fundamental to reality. Do you, do you not feel that way or do you, do you no, think I that do. you choose? Do you yeah, think yeah, you, you choose, choose to... and it is and it is that way and it becomes that way becomes that way for you personally but not collectively depending on what you believe well we we, we, we talk about this a lot when we talk about philosophy and stuff like that huh? when does something become reality let, let me give you an example suppose I sent you an image now of me sitting in a room and um, by the internet I send that to you sitting in another room in the Hague the setup that you have in the Hague determines how you see me. That's correct, huh? Mm -hmm. So what you see is your screen. You don't see me. But the, the language, or in this case, the technology that you have determines how you see me. It could be that I was broadcasting something differently or intended to broadcast something differently and you only catch the sounds of, of what I'm saying. Or you don't have the same color setting and, and it looks quite different or you don't have the same graphic chip, etc. So, so you, 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 there's a lot of ways in which what you receive and what you see can be different. Is that correct? Yes. So to me, that's something akin to... It's, it's a bit of a flat example, but... But anyway, it's something God reveals himself, yes. I see <laughs> the divine reveals herself, itself. I don't care what you want to do there. Mm -hmm. But you need a language in order to appropriate it. You need something from this world to understand in what kind of language you're talking about God, how you experience God. And that opens up, that technology opens up whether you only see sound or also image. Mm -hmm. Or perhaps even smell. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so first of all, you are restricted in the faculties that you have, and then the technology restricts you further. So who am I and what is the language I'm using is what I can experience from God. And what I'm saying is that there was something of a revolution in the way that people use language to describe who God is in the life of Jesus. Yeah. That makes sense. 
I can hear it. I, I still, you are still in this room. We're still seeing different images. Does that mean that the image that you now perceive is of a, let's say, higher quality or a higher accuracy? I'm just trying to see if this is not looking at it through rose-colored glasses. I'm trying to understand it right. I don't think it's the case because you know how I think about God. I actually believe that the underlying thing is. I think it's rose-colored glasses. So, uh, uh, why we... do I think it's rose-colored glasses? <laughs> I will... Well, human beings have evolved to ascribe agency to what they perceive around them. It's a safe way. Huh? Yeah. Everyone and says something like as one of the 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 it's one of the evolutionary expl expl explanations for religion is that humans are better off they survive they have a higher rate of survival if they ascribe agency suppose you hear a sound and you say well that's a rock falling somewhere there's no agency involved you don't do anything but it might be a lion who is hunting you better be to ascribe agency and then you say well i need to check this out whether or not there's agency well, as soon as you live with God, you're going to check it out. You're mm. going to find out, uh, you're going to be more attuned to agency, whether or not God is actually revealing himself to you. And that may be rose-colored glasses. At the same time, it is very much a stained mirror. You, you only see this little bit of who God is. Uh -huh. So it's two ways. I see. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm satisfied with your answers. I'll keep pondering it. <laughs> what do you think of non-theism? What? Non-theism? Non-theism. And I'll briefly explain for the people that... I think may that's not the Vakey term that you want yeah, to use. Yeah, may not be familiar. So, Vakey describes atheism and classical theism as two sides of a similar coin where atheists basically reject the idea of a supreme being and classical theists accept the idea of a supreme being ruling the universe yeah. and non-theists basically say there's no being at all god is the ground of being now he also seems to describe someone like jonathan pajot to be a bit of a non-theist even though he's an orthodox christian um so he would probably describe himself as a theist so it's a bit of a technical thing but i was wondering what you think of first of all the definition of the term do you view God in this way as well? And second of all, what do you think of the term itself? Do you think it's useful? What do you think about it? The, the, John, John Favecki is not a theologian. Um, that means that um, his idea of, of God is very much shaped by his own history uh, in a fundamentalist home and later on finding out something about Buddhism becoming really good at it by the way <laughs> teaching even about it so, so 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 no disrespect there but but i do believe that his antipathy to the term theism is very much shaped by american fundamentalism so what he would call non-theism is probably very much overlapping what jonathan peugeot sees about himself and he would never call himself a non-theist i would never call myself a non-theist um, if theism would be that you have a very described image of who god is and that you worship that image um, then of course john would be right and non-theism would be the better descriptor 
However, it is already in the Ten Commandments that you should not make that image of God and that you should not bow down to that image. So I think it's the core of the biblical revelation of who God is that you do not make an idol. And I think the theism that John refers to is very much an idol. It's a very described uh, way of looking at God. And some people make that idol. Let's be clear. A lot of Christians make an idol of God because they think that the words that they use for God are the same as the reality of God. Whereas I hope, at least in our household, you've been told that there's a difference between the words that we are using, which are human, and the reality uh, that we cannot describe. And I think that's something also that you contributed very much uh, in, um, in our previous conversation. So, yeah. Um, I would never call myself a non-theist, but 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 remember, we did study the uh, Gnostics, and some of the um, some of the names for God are like non-being. I mean, if if you're able to make those kinds of names for God, and if that's already in the uh, early tradition, uh, then you can understand how much more colorful that is than twentieth uh, century American fundamentalism. I see that. I also think that perhaps part of what John is trying to do is to grapple with it, with modern <laughs> ideas and modern people. And so for that to be graspable, there is a need to step down from something that is so undigestible for so many people that I guess this is why he yeah. phrases it in this manner, let's say. I think that's a very good point to it, as you say. So you open up the the strength and the energy and the and, and and the beauty that you can experience for people who are closed off by that same language. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And on the other hand, um, as I'm still <laughs> very much a Christian um, uh, and a biblical scholar, I would find it such a loss if we are no longer able to connect to all the generations before us. Yeah, and and by denouncing denouncing theism as their religion and only say salvaging a few mystics perhaps huh? mm -hmm. um, if that's what we do we close our off, ourselves off of their experience which produced so much beauty and so much love and so much um, uh, um, things that we can learn from so yeah, yeah. I, I I understand the point that you're making. I would argue the other point is important as well. Good. Respectable point of view. I like it. Um, I'd like to speak a bit about death, if you don't mind. Not in a very gloomy way, but I think about death a lot in a sense that death gives me limitations on life. Mm. And I've learned to appreciate death for making life more valuable hmm. if you think about that economically it's like the difference between infinite money and a limited supply mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> and so yeah. i was wondering for you what your relationship with death is you can answer that question however you like whether you are in fear of death whether you you're at peace with it how do you think about death Anything you'd like to share, I'd love to hear. <laughs> um, you often hear that Christians become Christian because they are afraid to die. Yeah. And then 
or that they are disappointed in life and they need something like heaven to comfort. As a young child, I was not at all in favor of the old-fashioned idea of heaven. I didn't think it was nice to live on forever. I thought it was tedious, boring, mm. and in a way uh, threatening because it's it would be inescapable to live for. Um, it went in a, almost the same way when I would think about infinity, like that the universe um, always has something beyond it that it's not it it it, it doesn't have a clear boundary. I know we talk in very mystical terms about the universe, like being a whole in itself and expanding universe and contracting universes, etc. But, but as a child, I was thinking of the universe as something that was unending, and it scared me, and I didn't like that, and I didn't like the idea of living forever. So, um, I had a, a a good incentive not to believe in um, an afterlife. The only point is that Jesus rose from the dead. Or in my mother's words, she went, she was in Canada for a long time. They were immigrants in Canada. I came home when her oldest brother had died. And then, uh, and then her mother said, but his eyes light lit up when, when he died, as if he was seeing something beautiful. And she kept looking for him, looking for him, and couldn't find him until one night she saw him in a dream playing the organ. She, he was playing Bach. He loved Bach, so he, he was playing beautiful organ music. I mean, it's clearly very contextualized for a European. <laughs> but anyway, so that was what he was doing. And then he said to her, no, now that you found me, you can sleep, but don't tell mom and dad because they will want to come earlier than they should. Okay, so what does this all tell me? It tells me that I found peace in allowing the afterlife to be the afterlife, whatever it is. I don't have any claims to it. That's it. That's it. I don't need an afterlife. I was happy, though. I was happy, though, when I read Augustine. How so? Um, as I was grappling with this idea i thought that well to be truly eternal there couldn't be time time should be something that was of this created universe i think it was 13 15 years old or something some, that area mm -hmm. uh, i was grappling with these things and i thought well time is the problem and then um when i was 17 or 18 i don't know i i read uh, Augustine's Confessions, and I finally found someone who said the same thing, that in God's presence there would not be time, which immediately solved the problem of boringness <laughs> of <a> heaven, <laughs> um, and of course opened up the whole Neoplatonic stuff, uh, etc. Et so it's it's all there already. It's not something, I'm, I'm not unique. Lots of kids have these thoughts, and uh, I was one of them, and guess what? In antiquity, we already have these examples, people who thought about it, and Einstein came to the same conclusion. He says um, uh, space and time are created 
in this universe, part of this universe. So yeah, um, that also makes makes the whole thinking about an afterlife, uh, if it's eternal, uh, rather superfluous. Because it's an experience of moving over to the other realm and whatever it is, it's, it, it is what it is, but it doesn't have to be, uh, it probably is not time-based at all. So I don't have to be afraid of uh, heaven. I used to be afraid of heaven. I'm no longer afraid of heaven. Do you, you don't fear that there's no experience for you after death? I don't fear that. I don't long for it. Um, it's fine with me. I've, I've read it up enough of people who have uh, like near-death experiences. They're also hellish, nightmarish near-death experiences, but most of all, most of them are pretty good. Um, and um, we we associate them with things that happen in the brain or what have you. I don't care about all that. I just know that if I um, if I can live within that faith, within that trust, um, I don't have to be afraid of dying. It's going to be fine. It's a bit like when you went to your ayahuasca experience that we very much wanted you to be in harmony before you would go there. What do you mean by so, that? So that whatever would happen, these experiences, if they would be in love and harmony, you would get a experience of what is good rather than what is bad. And that's how you came back. You said, I'm no longer afraid of death. I know that there is consciousness beyond my own consciousness. I know there is love. Mm. I know that is the fundament of reality. Well, you can't prove it. I'd love for you to prove it, but it's that's beyond faith. that grasp to prove it. But the yeah. fact that you may trust it now that changes your outlook. No, oh, absolutely. I'm more sure of that than, like you say, you're a super doubter, or what was the term you used? Arch, arch doubter. I I don't, I have that with a lot of things, but not with that. What I have been thinking about though is, I was wondering whether that would be the same for everyone else. I was wondering if there is such a thing as that hellish experience if people end up there, but then I'm also speaking of temporal terms. So I'm already shooting myself in the foot. So I think yep. thinking about these things almost defeats the purpose. But what I do think is that if you're in a good state of mind, that somehow I don't know exactly how it works, but I think it holds true that that does help you because your it experience could be that transition, that the transition is not beyond space and time. Yeah. So people who experience a near-death experience are in the process of transitioning to death, but come back. So the transitioning process can be hellish. Especially if you like your ego. Perhaps. It's it's a guess. I don't know. Can't prove it. I haven't done not, no research. I've, re I've read some research, but it's very difficult to do. I think it's really very researchable. I just think it intuitively, simply because death by definition means that your ego is going i think i think in a, in a way it's merging you with uh, with god or with uh, <laughs> collective consciousness let's say but the, yeah, the, yeah the yeah. interesting thing is the difference in different uh, religions of thinking about this because i think wolfgang smith describes very interestingly how in eastern thought 
there is really nothing left of the identity of the ego. Whereas in Christian thought, it's not just a merging with God, it's actually a relationship. And so I don't know if that holds true for beyond death. That's something I've pondered. Well, if it's a falling into love, I'm not saying falling in love, but I'm saying falling into love. Into love. Uh, that would be that would be great. I mean, then you have an experience of um, of, of becoming one with God. That would be a great experience. It would end there. It would. <laughs> that, I mean, beyond that, there is probably no experience. I don't know. I mean, I'm just <laughs> surmising here that there is no time in the eternity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I have never been there. But but entering into that reality of uh, of uh, uh, timeless love that would be uh, that would be nice. I, I, I would sign up for that. But of you course. said something about different religions, huh? Um, it's even within Judaism of Jesus' time that there were at least three ways of looking at it, if not more. Yes. So you, so you had the people who said, like the Sadducees, only the spirit that God gave us, which is divine spirit, which is not us, that will return to God. And that will live with God, that will be alive, but our personality our ego our, our body will all die and then you had uh, people like the Essenes who said well no no the soul is probably something that um, that remains and that may um, that, that, that may be redeemed and then the um, uh, the Pharisees would say well there's so many people who didn't experience justice in this world we think the world will be renewed and they will be revived with their body so there we get the question what actually is resurrected it's only the spirit or the spirit never dies is it only the soul or is it also the body and and one of the cool things in the um in in uh, the book of acts is that at one point um one of the disciples says well we found a faith that 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 keeps the soul alive so something of my personality may may remain well, that's a that's a rather interesting thought gets us a little bit down to earth again from from what we just did where we said there's nothing because god is all in all it would mean that um there's something of a collective personality god becomes something of a collective personality in which our personal stories actually have their um contribution to make and that that's a funny thing to think about yeah <laughs> Do you have a preference for any of the perspectives? Um, I don't need a resurrection of the flesh, even though that is what my faith tells me. So my, my tradition, my faith tradition, is very much grounded in the Pharisee thought, huh? the group of the pious Jews that believed in the resurrection of the body, um, because they thought that the earth needed to be remade and if and that's actually a good thing i mean if you read anti right he's very strong on this it's it's an, it's an important thing um for me it's not something that i look forward to in any sense um i'd love the earth to be better but i don't need to be revived to be part of that i also wonder what they mean when they speak of reviving the flesh i really i really struggle with this in understanding it because I'm not sure if they mean it in the sense that we're thinking about it 
it's not clear to me at all when I hear, for example, Paul speak about this. I think but explicitly that's so. That's Sorry. The Paul needs to think about it. Yeah. So he experienced a conflict within his community about people have different thoughts. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's like you say, over, it's a lot of speculation. But to me, it's fun because especially with people that have deep convictions, I've always wondered where does that come from? Hmm. You have you have participatory knowledge. How do you know that's true? And so... Well, you I, have a little bit. And, and then you could extrapolate that. The glimpse. You just had your... You had your experience and you extrapolated that to a larger reality. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> I have my say, mystical experiences, and I extrapolate that to a larger reality. Um, Polk, being a Pharisee, very much came from the bodily aspect of resurrection, saw that also in the resurrection of Jesus, being a bodily resurrection, <clears throat> but then also was sensitive to the science of his days, uh, saying that, well, the, the, the uh, heavenly realm that we will enter is of a different nature. So our our bodies need to be transformed. So he already understood that a too literal interpretation of his own faith, to which he held, he held on to it. He didn't agree with the guys in the church that said resurrection already took place when you when you became a Christian. I uh, said that's not true. There's still something to wait for. Uh, but then he also said something, but in order to be in that other realm, we our, body, our, our fleshly bodies have to be transformed. So yeah, he's, he's struggling with it as well, and, I, and, I, and I, I love him for doing that. Struggle is all we can do. I uh, yeah. Guess the, yeah. <laughs> the yeah. best yeah. thing, perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But when you were young, eh, you said you, you were very uncertain and... and um, uh, was that also about questions about death? Oh, absolutely. It's one of my most memorable experiences that I've had many times, actually, where I would be laying in bed and I was uh, completely atheist, I think, as a child, like completely almost from age seven or something. And I thought that, well, I was, I was pondering the thought that after I died, there would be nothing. And that nothingness, like forever, nothing, no experience. That gave me the biggest fear in the world. I couldn't, it was, it was horrific. Mm. And every time I let my thoughts go there, I would try to snap out of it. Like I would try to, I remember very well, like I would play tricks on my mind to get out of that, that reasoning. Mm. And especially after I watched Interstellar, I remember for the first time with you in the cinema, I had yeah. that where it was so... I guess, confronted with space and time and all these things. So I was like, when I die, it's over. That's it. And so the dread of that, it reigned supreme in my, in my childhood. Yeah. You listened to that soundtrack so many, many times. Still I do. I do. Yeah. But it's, it's funny because actually I wrote about this for my Portuguese class because it asked about, uh, I had to speak about, my favorite movie or movie soundtrack or my favorite music. That was it. And I listened mostly to cinematic music because I love listening to, to stories and music with stories puts me in the stories. Yeah. And so the first time I saw Interstellar, I was like, uh, 
I don't know how old, 12, 13. And I was just confused by it, overwhelmed by it. And what I wrote in that essay was that it's very linked to my own transformation and it's linked to my own thoughts about death. It's very closely linked to death because so first I was horrified and then I kept watching a movie. I've probably watched it over eight times now, maybe even more. Still remains, I think, my favorite movie. And that is that I saw that within the movie, you see how love actually transcends time and space yeah. because he is somehow connected to his daughter in space while he's somewhere near Saturn or whatever. <laughs> and uh, he fixes, he fixes the situation and he lets the human race survive. And that's just because of love. Yeah. And I think that's true. Did you know that when you saw it the first time? No, of course not. That's why I saw it. When did, when did this, when did this dawn upon you? I think it was only years later after I'd already watched it a couple of times. I think it was also just experiencing that love transcended space and time. Yeah. I had to experience that before I even got the movie. So I wrote about that. But it's so interesting, uh, Lucas. Is, um, I, when I was 13, I chose to be a Christian. You chose to be atheist. I was afraid of heaven. You were afraid of nothingness. Yeah. Both we were persuaded that it's okay because of love. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. That's, In that's, a way, that's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But it's two sides of the same coin. Yeah, it is. It's perpetuity it is. and it's finiteness. That's really cool. I, I think I'm really... I actually came to peace with death to, to finish the story a little afterwards when I was like 15 because that's the first times I started to experience pain, like really pain. I uh, I had my braces for, for years and years and my teeth were really messed up. So there was a lot of pressure on my teeth and I literally couldn't do anything else but be confronted with that pain. And I was like, okay, this is this could be, for perpetuity, this could be hell. <laughs> So then I understood death already in that sense. But it was only after I got to to see the love side of it that I could come to peace. Yeah. Still, I with people I speak to when I ask them, because I actually ask a lot of people questions about death, a lot of people say that they don't necessarily fear death as much as a concept or as, as something that's going to happen to them, but they fear pain. That's what I understand. I would yeah. fear pain also. You've been very intimate with pain for years. Yeah, I don't fear pain. You've 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 met pain. How come you I've, don't fear pain? I've met God. Mm. Inside my, of pain. My pain was never cured, but I was not the only one to carry it. Mm. How do you mean that? There's two ways of dealing with pain, of chronic pain. Um but you can't escape it so it's not like a in my case it's not like a pain that you would get from using say a leg or something but it was a pain that would be inescapable um that like like for instance labor you can't escape labor i mean the someone who is in labor we read that passage in church from one thessalonians this morning (laughs) the coming of the Lord is like labor coming upon uh, a pregnant woman. Um, 
it says something like, but when the child is born, that's a different text, but it, there's a different text about it. She forgets about the pain. Well, not really, but a lot of it. She forgets a lot of it because of the life that she is holding in her arms. And I have, that's a, I'm a bit emotional about this, but I think I've been comforted much in, in my pain. Hmm. And perhaps the comfort that I remember even better than the pain. Yeah. Do you think you were closest to God in pain? No, not necessarily. You can also be very close to God because <clears throat> you know that I think a little bit about body, soul, and spirit. And our soul system, which is not rational, which is not not reasoning, it's not an ego system, but but it's very much driven by emotions. Huh? Our soul is rejoicing, the psalm says, or our soul is cast down. It's 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 roaring like a lion, or it's singing songs. So it can be both jubilant and um, and in pain. And I think, and it can be comforted, but it won't be comforted easy. It's like when you look at Psalm one hundred and thirty-one, it's like a little child at the breast of uh, at uh, on the lap on the lap of its mother, and it. And I, and I remember how I cried on my mother's lap. I mean, I, it wouldn't stop immediately. I would go quiet and I'd come back a little bit and then sort of like it would take time for it to uh, to become smaller and smaller. Um, but the comfort of being on your mother's lap, being on God's lap, so to speak, is something that you remember for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah, I recognize that. But it's also the comfort of, uh, the, also the, the joy uh, of exploring the, as a little child that you will remember for the rest of your life or some of other first experience, perhaps falling in love for the first time that you may experience for the rest of your life, holding your first child in your arms. Those experiences are very much the experiences that I associate with with uh, because I... I, I I, I was always someone doing this together with God. So I very much associate them with God as well. Is there anything you absolutely want to experience before you die? No. <laughs> no, I could die now. It's fine. I could die years from now. Um, <clears throat> I did say when I was younger that my goal in life, <clears throat> when thinking about it, I had a very nice grandpa. And I was thinking it would be nice to become a mild grandfather. So uh, that's perhaps something because I said that at the time that would be fun to, to experience. Okay. No, no pressure, no pressure, no pressure. If it's done today or tomorrow, that's fine as well. That's uh, <laughs> I don't need to have that experience before I die. Mm -hmm. That's a want, not a need. No. I see. So you are ready. Hmm? You're ready to die now. It's a big word to say, yeah, but... Not that you not? want to, but... I, I, well, but I was ready to die quite early in life. Yeah. And I think I also said to you guys, if you want to do stuff that you want to 
do that are really dangerous, do it before you get young kids. When you get kids, you can't die anymore. So that's a reason not to die. That's because you so much uh, feel responsible for what is entrusted to you. Yeah. But even that is not something that you... I mean, that even that is a fallacy. <laughs> you have no control about the experiences that, that you had or that your sister had or what have you. Yeah, no, I understand. I I definitely felt really okay with dying for very long until I met my partner. And I was yeah. like, and I even felt that I would die early for some reason. I really had this. Remember that? Yeah, I don't, you remember? Very, you were very, very strict about it. You would die early. Well, that was even before because, so when I was really young, like 15, 16, and I was still like atheist and, all these things i didn't have a lot of meaning in my life what i did think was meaningful was dying <laughs> so i was like let me just go into the army and go into the front line that was just what i was going to do so i even did the test and everything and i went to the to the military base and i passed oh, the test not to brag about it not to brag about it but you went to the test without changing anything about your routine and it was the the toughest test there was for the marines and you had no problem of qualifying whatsoever. You were extremely ready to do that, except for getting out of bed early in the morning. You said that's the reason why you didn't. It's one of the it. reasons. Well, it was just because <laughs> it wasn't like uh, very good for longevity. I felt to sleep for three or four hours sometimes and to be screamed at the whole time. Are you telling me you want to die early, but it's not good for longevity that you would sleep three hours? I mean, you shouldn't you shouldn't argue with myself from the past. There wasn't <laughs> a lot of reason there. Still yeah. not a lot, just a glimpse. No, but, but it's but 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 you're absolutely right. At that point in time, you thought that dying early would actually be good, and I think still people who say they're afraid of being in pain when they grow old, it's very much with that what what we fear to become. Um, and now that you are in love, you you have hopes and dreams for things that you want to do together. Yeah. So you have a purpose to not to die, and I think that's that's exactly what Paul says. Uh, he says, "I'm fine going away." I'm in Philippians that he says, "But but to stay here is is I'll, I'll use my words for it, not his words, is more fun because of you." Yeah. He says it's more useful, but that's bit patronizing so well, it's more fun it's to, because of you it's, it would be fun to see to see uh your 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 children grow up to to see a next generation grow up again no pressure there's enough going around that we can see children from others but yeah that that would be great and i am anxious to see how our this 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 period in in our world history how that proceeds yeah it's very intriguing um so yeah but but then again it's all useless to think that you should be alive to witness it so yeah i'm 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 happy to be part of it uh, but i would also be okay with not being part of it yeah i see it's good to put some importance into the earthly uh... <laughs> the earthly realm i do fear fear that maybe i stepped a bit too far with thinking about death so loosely at the time such a positive way because mm -hmm. i am aware of for example some 
Christian thinkers that look at death as something evil and Jesus conquered it, you know? Mm -hmm. It's the enemy. Yeah, in such a way. I, I never felt that way. I don't know if that's a dangerous way to think that I'm thinking like that. Um, but I do take that perspective seriously when I hear it. I don't it's not anyone saying it. Sorry? But if you watch what's going on in Gaza right now or what happened on the 7th of October um, in Israel, uh, it is the enemy. Death and destruction and humiliation, uh, it is the enemy. It is the opposite of life. Um, but um, dying in itself and being part of God is not something that I associate with death. I think I see what you're saying. I think there's also a natural way to go and a way that is clearly not natural and causes suffering. Yeah. I feel that war is that way for sure. But I felt when my grandmother passed that it was very natural and very beautiful in a sense. Yeah, although I cried like a river. <laughs> you did cry a river. But do you think there could have been a better scenario of that happening almost? I, I can barely foresee it. No, even even crying like a river felt really, really, really good. Yeah. It felt so much like, oh boy, I love her. Yeah, and that you, that you cry so much for someone shows that you care. That's so beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, I feel the same way. Mm. Yeah, I think I can round the death subject off very well here i'm very happy to have heard your thoughts um i want to speak a bit about wisdom because it is central to a lot of the questions we ask and i know that religious people seem to be wiser for for whatever reason that is how do you get wiser do you have practices what do you think is wiser about religious people Well, before I go on, what I'm speaking about is is from from like a scientific study. So I'm not just being a <laughs> a biased religious nut. Um, what what do I think is more wise about religious people is perhaps in line with what we've been speaking about is that there is meaning in the world mm -hmm. for starters. That is part of a religious framework, at least the religious framework I know, the Christian framework, that there is meaning. And I think that's true. So mm -hmm. in that sense, I feel that I'm closer to reality because of that framework. And in another sense, it teaches you to care about other people. And so it puts community close and family close. And I think that's wise. Yeah. And I think having family close to you calls you out for bad decisions. Um, it helps you. It helps you flourish in life. It helps you in terms of your financial situation as well often and that can give you um the peace of mind let's say also to to think about things yeah in a wiser manner and then lastly i think what is the main one of the main reasons is actually the rituals and the stories yeah. because that is what stories seem to do with us myth in general yeah. is that they seem to as Raveki said i think that myths pertain to the perennial problems that everyone de deals with and by going through the stories and even acting out the stories, so ritual as well, you learn how to 
how to make the right decisions, Absolutely. even in different situations. Yeah. So it's not it's just easy. one path. Sorry. It's easy with the fairy tales. Yeah. And the fairy tales of uh, the old king has to die and the new king has to stand up. That's the fairy tale of me raising teenagers. Yeah. The old king has to die. Someone new has to step into their lives, a new queen, or in your case, or, or a new king. Yeah. And the old influence has to wane and the other one has to become stronger. Um, it's almost like all these myths and all these rituals prepare you for life experience that you're not necessarily had when you were 20 or 30 or 40 or even death something that i have not yet experienced um so yeah there's a lot of wisdom because it's it's um it's the imaginal we spoke about the imaginal last time it's the imaginal of the the path through life and death that you will walk yeah and you are part of such a rich imaginal world with characters that you have been uh, empathizing with identifying with that it makes you wise bef beyond your years so yeah I, I would I, I would definitely say being grounded in a tradition um, even being grounded in multiple traditions that's also possible can give you an enormous amount of wisdom having said that uh, the question to be asked is why are scientific people in particular often so unwise? Do you have the answer? Yes, I have the answer. What is the answer? <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but I do believe a lot, a lot of our life is about balance. So if we don't tend to our bodily needs, to our psych psychic or emotional needs, needs social needs, uh, or, or to our mental needs, um, then we run out of balance. And the Bible also talks about the heart as the decision-making center. So we would say our ego, our thinking and, and, and reasoning ego, uh, that it's often deceived. So if you live on the out, if you, if you live on the, uh, the, in the ego um, and you believe that's all there is, you're not attuned to your body, you're not attuned to your emotions, and not attuned to the spirituality that you have, um, then you're sort of cut off from most of what you are. And I think that's, that's not good for your health, your, for your wisdom. Yeah. And even if you have embraced, say, your spirituality or your mental faculties, that's why religion is not always good for you. Um, there are two sins that I associate most with being in your mind, and that's true for religious people, but it's also true for some scientific people, some. Um, that could either be that you, uh, that you retreat into fantasy. You're happy to live your life in fantasy. You're happy to entertain the thought of being social and good, etc. But you're not actually walking this lady's dog or bringing soup to this person that is sick. So you're happy to entertain all these thoughts but you're not doing it in real life you're not embodying it um and that would be the sin of acadia or idleness it's it's fruit it's, it's it's useless it's it's nihilism it's nothing it's 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 uh it's fantasy world or what have you and the other one would be hubris or arrogance the the the, the idea that what you have thought through is actually applicable at a far larger scale than what you researched that you can draw conclusions for the rest of humanity and perhaps even for the planet. 
And that leads to a sort of dictatorship that is very unwise. And again, you are deceiving yourself if you think that is science. It's not science. Science is a scientific method and it thrives on, th on doubt. Uh, we re all remember the COVID period. And um, I, I believe at one point in time, scientists said, well, we have to stand together with giving the same message, all of us. Otherwise, we cannot save the people. At that moment, it stops being science. Yeah, it's like um, some something I've heard someone say, still question questioning. It's yeah. just, <laughs> it's falsehood by definition. Yeah. But yeah, okay. Yeah. I hear you. So do you think our modern age is, is more or less wise than, than let's say the Greeks and the Romans? What do you think? Oh, it's far less wise. No, I mean, let, 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 remember Utsi, the, um, uh, the, 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 the corpse found in the glaciers uh, on the border between Italy and Austria? Yeah. Um, they've analyzed almost everything about him. Um, recently, even the color of his skin, um, and they um, they found out that the clothes he was wearing were absolutely fit for purpose there. And only if you have a lot of money today, you can buy uh, alpine clothes that are of, a, of the same quality. He had antibiotics on him, etc. And this is all five thousand years ago. Huh? That's that's long. So people had the opportunity to observe live over the course of generations over the course of generations so they could be wise because society was reasonably stable you could um, learn from the stories of old now society is in a far faster development we have experiences that you have experiences that we did not have I've had experiences that my grand, that my father and mother did not have. Your grandparents. Um, it's. It doesn't seem that that the young people from today um, can learn everything that they want to learn from the stories of people before them because they have so many new challenges. They have to find out so many new things, and wisdom, especially in Latin, means something of to have tasted it already. You've either tasted it because of your own experience or because of participating in the stories and rituals of those that went before you. If you live in a day and age that you feel that the previous generations uh, have no answers for the challenges you face in life, you may, you may be right, by the way, because of technological advancement and uh, the way that we have um, 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 expanded over the planet. So, so young people might be right, but I think they extrapolate that in a lot of areas of life, they also think they do not have to turn to their parents, but would rather turn to their peers only. And then we talk about how do you develop relationships, how do you build a business, how do you uh, study, etc. A lot of stuff that you would have experienced, say, uh, over the centuries in a far more stable environment. So yes, I believe that by def by, 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 as a result of that, it would be weird if people today would be as wise as people say 3,000 years ago. It's a good answer. I like it. I, I wonder, thinking about these, these questions, whether tradition is 
therefore less important because we have less utility in that sense of it or if it's actually more important because you have nothing to ground yourself in like you're going for these challenges with empty hands and empty minds so in a sense you're more adaptable but also you might be much more prone to to hubris and foolishness yeah Yeah. so what do you think do you think tradition right now is more important or less well, the better answer is your answer because you are living this as a young person in this time. My answer. Yeah, because for, we, you see, already in my generation, many people said no to tradition because of the sexual revolution, the Cold War, um, those changes. Um so and I don't think they've necessarily fared better than those of us who still held to tradition. But if you hold too if you hold too firmly to tradition, you're not able to meet the new challenges of your age. So I think that my generation on average would have benefited from a bit more tradition. On average. But too much tradition is not good either. Mm-hmm. You need to renew because there are these developments that we talked about. I can't answer for your generation. So I would love to hear how you experience that. Well, I'm a bit of a traditionalist, I found out recently, in a sense that I really respect it. I really deeply respect it because I expose myself to so many different perspectives. People that I really disagree with, people that that I do agree with a little bit. There's rarely anyone that I fully agree with. And I find myself to respect so much more often older people or people that are grounded in tradition. For example, a lot of Muslims to me seem so much wiser in, in every single way than my, my secular fellow countrymen in that sense. Um, mm. So I see that my generation, even more than yours, is completely neglecting religion, especially um people that, that are not grounded in tradition and people that have grown up here in the Netherlands and have Dutch ancestors and whatnot, because we are quite secular, at least if you ask people what they are, they'll tell you they're secular. In that sense, I see that there is a deep need for it. But that's more in a, not in a di- direct application, like a physical manifestation, a, a, a certain pathway, more in a sense of the way you think about life. Mm-hmm. Um do you respect your parents? Do you respect your grandparents? Do you respect the people before you? Do you respect the society that you grew up in? Do you respect everything that came up so that you could be here today? I see a lot of rejection of the past and I see a lot of skepticism of older people and the tradition they were brought in. And, and that really bothers me. Hmm. Seriously bugs me. Especially because I'm in an environment where so many people think this way. And I... Are you talking about university or you're talking about The Hague or what, what are you talking Both. about? <laughs> Both. But the, the, these people are some of my favorite people in the world because with that comes also this radical openness. Hmm. Um, even though they're quite skeptical about a lot of things, there are also people that moved here from different countries. There are people that are really open to new ideas, but it's also to their own detriment, sadly. Um, so it's always a combination of the two. And this is where I really like actually Robert Persick's work who speaks about reality 
through a metaphysics of quality and he he points out that you have dynamic and static quality and so static quality in a way can represent tradition and dynamic quality can represent progression ability for instance sorry adaptability for instance exactly so you always need both and yeah. what that exactly is depends first on your personal situation there's some people that grow deeply grounded in tradition and that are chained by it I myself was not deeply grounded in tradition. I grew up Protestant. And in a way, I felt I needed a bit more of that, especially in the way I went, for example, about relationships. I have an extremely, compared to my peers, traditional view of relationships where I'm really like, you, you choose someone, you don't try people out. Uh, that has really benefited me. And I've seen people, many people that look at my story and really look at me and be like, oh, really, I, I went wrong here, actually. I want that, even though society and the sexual revolution tell them that you shouldn't want that. So in that sense, I've really benefited from it. Um, but yeah, so to boil down the answer before going on too long, it's always a bit of both. And what that is exactly, that's something you discover um, in experience, I guess. But definitely respect what came before you, before you judge it. And if you don't have a good alternative, then don't stray from it you really need to have a good alternative to stray from it because that's not something you do. You just do like it's nothing. It's something you I, have to be I also sure think of. The, the young people are suffering as a result of it. Oh, absolutely. If, you perceive, if you perceive the previous generations as the one who ruined the planet through colonialism and uh, CO2 emissions, and that you are the generation that either solves it or that goes extinct. I mean, that's a, that's a narrative today. That narrative is highly threatening, undemocratic, because you would have to get rid of the people who are, were before you who didn't understand what they were doing wrong. Um, it's it's you're not connecting to them. You're not part not part of their story, and you're the only generation who has to find out all of this. Whereas if you would say, well, my grandparents, they solved World War II and anti-Semitism. My parents solved um, hunger, huge hunger, and uh, the Cold War. And we're going to solve uh, sustainable living. That means that I can go to my grandparents and say, well, what happened that you overcame World War II? Or you can go to your parents and say, say well, what happened that the economy grew and that uh, we were able to feed so many people and these huge, these huge famines uh, ended? That sort of gives you hope that you are able to solve the problems of this age. Yeah. So it's a different narrative. And I think that narrative would sort of connect the generations and make them far more powerful to solve problems of this day yeah. than the current way that it's done like almost an opposition between generations. Mm -hmm. I completely agree. I feel that um, the underlying spirit of whatever ideology you're operating in or whatever tradition you're operating in cannot be resentment. And so whether it is a tradition or a new ideology, that's what you should be looking at. <clears throat> so I'm looking for something that not only binds people together, but also solves issues. Yes. And that seems to be a combination of traditional values, but also the ability to adapt. To, Every to, generation to... needed to 
needed to adapt. So yeah. even though we passed on the tradition, <laughs> every generation needed to adapt as well. And it's often not something that you perceive coming later. So mm -hmm. you look back and you say, oh, that's the tradition. But no, 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 no. Your parents adapted tremendously. Your grandparents treme adapted tremendously. Yeah. Yeah, they were also young at some point. Yeah, they <laughs> believe were. Believe it or not. And this is why I, I feel the same way about um, about democracy, that you need to have to push and pull forces of saying, okay, let's conserve and let's progress. I mean, that needs to speak to each other, same way that we need to speak to older people. Older people need to speak to younger people. And so I want to regain that. I see that it's a mission on my part to to get people speaking again, mm. especially people that differ from perspective. <laughs> That's a longer mission, but it starts with me respectfully disagreeing with people a lot and having a fun dialogue about it. Like today, for example, I spoke to a friend of mine in the gym for, for quite a while who is more Keynesian economically in his, uh, mm -hmm. his upbringing. And I completely disagree with that, like every bit about it. So we were speaking. I think you have to summarize that a little bit for, for people watching. Well, what, what does he believe about economics then? Well, for example, that it's not a bad thing to create money out of thin air. Well, it's never out of thin air because in my view, especially with how much this is happening now, um, modern economics is predicated on the idea that it's not a bad thing to create money and therefore um, through inflation steal it from people, working people. And that is so deeply baked into universities that people don't even question that assumption that inflation is a good thing, for example. Now, there's a whole new surge of, of people coming from uh, people that like Bitcoin, for example, but also people that are studying much older economic theories from 18 and 1900s that say that inflation is a very bad thing, that money needs to be uh, finite in supply. <laughs> and well, so, sorry. Those people, those people had the experience, like, for instance, the Weimar Republic. Uh, of what inflation can do to destroy a society. Exactly. And that came up as well with me today, where I was like, we've created so much money in the last three years, four years. How are you going to prevent a Weimar? Like we were speaking about um, retiring and we have the whole social security thing in the Netherlands. And I was like, where does your faith come from? That <laughs> you're going to put money in something and in 60 years, it's just going to be there waiting for you. Um, well, we have a completely wrong perspective on what money is, of course. We yeah. feel that money is something stable and that it can buy something, that it can buy something that looks like what we have today. Uh, but if, say, for instance, there is a scenario, it doesn't have to be true, it can be a completely different scenario uh, with all the population growth in Africa, but it, there is a scenario that there will be more older people and fewer younger people in the future. That the that the healthcare and general care uh, costs of society will grow and grow as part of our national income. The whole idea that young people would be willing to put up with that and take care of all these older people at the pension levels that they created is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Why would they? Yeah. So, 
<laughs> exactly. So this is where I think I partially disagreed, but more, more other things as well. But I did it in a way where it was like, you know, if you have uh, the ability, please convince me that I'm wrong because I'd love to be wrong. I don't want to predict this. It's not, it doesn't sound good. So I didn't, I didn't go to him being like, I, I really disagree with you. Like, this is the truth because I don't know if I'm right and I don't want to be right. I never do. Um, just out of the theories I've entertained, this seems to be more plausible to me. Hmm. <laughs> if you like this specifically, I did a whole episode about it with, uh, <laughs> with Karen, which I'll link, but not to go into the specifics that that's that's just one example but many times i feel that i am at odds with how younger people think about things but i've also seen a massive shift um i think i forget it forget his name justin berkeley i think is doing a show on new atheism justin Bryant. sorry that's it and um i think he brilliantly shows how people are shifting in their ideas also about god and about about faith because they're no longer forced to sing the songs and forced to go to church and not being like okay wait there's actually something missing Hmm. and so i think now the tradition is disappearing and people are you know 35 and single and you know they're realizing that they're missing something now i think there's also much more openness to it and what you do now is you don't ridicule you don't say see you're wrong (laughs) I was right. You're lonely. No, you you open out your arms and you lovingly try to lead the way. And then you ask them if they can help you with other things because maybe they're more adaptable. And so I'm trying to really understand both perspectives. And that's why I find it um, very difficult to hear people speak about others these days, especially when it comes to political things where there's such a left hemispheric certainty of that your perspective is right Mm -hmm. whereas you should be working together and that's all so yeah that's what i what i'll say about it but it's a constant uh it's a constant journey that's very meaningful for me can i say something about politics here yes you can um, I've always felt that there were people who are by ideology driven to seek more solutions either in the state by creating more rules or letting money flow through the states and come back in the market, like allowing companies to more freedom and uh, have fewer taxes, but assume that the market will solve it um, by having stronger individuals by mostly by creating more education, um, fewer restrictions on what people choose in sexuality and what have you, um, but also by, for instance, preventing people to, for fiscal reasons, to stay together. Uh, Like uh, we used to have that you would put in your fiscal statement as a a family, uh, and that changed. It's become all individualized. And then people who are looking for stronger relationships, stronger groups, stronger associations. We used in the Netherlands, we used to work together to keep our feet dry in the polders. We would use to work together to build houses, to to put schools together, not being of either the state or the market. It's a quite unique situation. Um, what I found is that a lot of people thought if they became stronger individuals, they would be more successful in the world. And that sort of turns against them now, because the state 
and the market are two spirits. They're basically spirits. They don't exist. Uh, people exist, buildings exist, things that we do exist, but but the way that we organize them is a spirit. There's, there's the spirit of the state or the spirit of the market. And, and individuals stand pretty much alone in, 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 in the battle between those two spirits. They have nothing, nothing to, to save them. For a while, they can be part of the rat race. But as soon as they find that they need to take care of someone or they grow sick themselves, they grow older, or perhaps they have children, uh, it's almost impossible to stay in the rat race. And if you don't have those old-fashioned communities that you can fall back on, your, your family, your church, uh, the neighborhood, if you don't have strong communities that you can fall back on, you're powerless in the face of these two spirits, the spirit of the state and the spirit of, of the market. That's excellent. I really like this because it's... Uh... Something that reminds me of Jonathan Pajot's talk at the art conference, where he's saying that whether you're on the left or the right, both of your ideologies are predicated on stuff. So, A, the market provides all your needs. So, you know, lower costs and, and you'll, you'll get your stuff for, for less. So you won't have to work as much. Or the state provides it because you can't work and it fill, fills up the people that slip through the cracks. But in reality, you're you're implying that stuff is the most important thing and not community or relationship. So you need something beyond both the state and the market. And you can argue how much should exactly. be done by the state and the market, but that's much less important than having communities in place and having family in place and having friendships. And so that's something we should spend so much more time on that I'm so tired of people arguing about what to do with all the stuff and how we're going to deal with the stuff and how we're going to get more stuff because it's so materialistic. Yeah, so it's a really and good I, point. And I have a few. Uh, I think all four sources of me, of finding solutions are, are important. Huh? You can find solutions by organizing something through the state, or by giving more freedom to the market, or making individuals stronger. But I have the feeling that for a long time, um, Western discourse has looked down on traditional relationships um, and sort of tried to undermine them in order to give extra emphasis on those other three sources of improvements. And I think it's come to a time that that we need to revalue that and probably say, well, we actually may need people at universities who are there for a longer time than just two years on a contract and then move on. We may need schools that know their their children by giving more time to to instructors to teachers to to work with them we may actually value the fact that you can find work in your neighborhood rather than being draw, being pushed to another state or another country uh, just because the market situation requires more people there yeah um, we may actually have to listen more to our biology that it's actually better for us and for our children to get our children uh, when we are in our 20s rather than our 30s mm. all that kind of stuff i mean if we don't if we don't stand tall now um the state is not a person the market is not a person nobody gets happy by being more state or more market an individual is a person and it's sometimes necessary to give the individual more tools and freedom the the, the, the community are persons those can be happy Trusting too much on the spirit of state or market 
can be done at the expense of the happiness of both individuals and communities. Yeah. And the maintenance of it. And I think that it's all about a hierarchy of values where if you really value stuff the most, this is what we're ending up with, what we're seeing now. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that, that you should blame the market for that or whatever. I think what is, what is to blame is ourselves and we need to rebuild. And that's mm. just it. And and th that should not be done by, by coercion or whatever. It, it should just be done by reaching out to your neighbor and helping, helping your friends move. And, and, you know, if, if you see people slipping through the cracks, lift them up. And th there's only so much you can do, but if you just do a little bit, it's going to ripple out for sure. And that's, I think, uh, all of our task. If you're listening to this and you want to do anything, then just do that. You know, and now, you're, and now you're back to my faith, to Jesus, because in that Roman Empire, how often do you think of the Roman Empire? <laughs> in that in that Roman Empire, what happened was that people were seeing as instruments because there was a business model. The business model was the expansion of the Roman Empire that allowed 600 families in Rome to become richer and richer and richer. They became governors of governors of states, etc., and, and, and they could amass enormous riches by extracting the surplus wealth of the communities there. Um, that sort of was farmed out to to tax collectors, etc., and in the end, you had a lot of poor people who lived subsistence. You also had a middle class, wasn't too big, and then you had a few very, very, very rich families. Um, what Jesus did is. He's, he, he saw the displacement of people and said, you're brothers and sisters. You can create a family of your own. You can be brothers and sisters. You can create new families. And I see that also coming through some of the movies we're watching now on Netflix, etc., that they say, well, family doesn't have to be physical. One part of that is attaching the tradition, is attacking the traditional family. But another part of it is actually quite good, which says, well, please do. Do create those new relationships and, and, and create those places where you take care of each other for a long term i think that's beautiful and i uh i think it's a beautiful place to end it i think it's a good message applicable most of all you don't have to read 14 books <laughs> whatever you want to do just help each other and um aim up so thank you for your time today it's been lovely speaking to you thanks brother as we used to do on the sundays yeah we used to do that yeah it's good to get that online <laughs> <laughs> i'll okay. see you soon i think uh, okay. next week right take care yeah see you bye-bye